Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. Picking up where we left off uh, from our previous episode in discussing sudden cardiac arrest, I wanted to share an excerpt here that is, um, quote, when the NCAA hired a neurologist two years ago to improve protocols for handling concussions, nobody foresaw that he would make a priority out of sudden cardiac death. But as the first chief medical officer in the history of the NCAA, an organization founded to promote athlete health, I giggle at that because the irony of it, uh, Brian Hainline has no intention of limiting his influence to neurology. He's quoted as saying, concussions have overshadowed everything. However, why aren't we talking about death? And so uh, Brian Hayline is a uh, NYU, New York University neurologist. And uh, that was an excerpt from an article that I found. And I thought it was really interesting to continue framing our discussion around sudden cardiac arrest. And it, it also makes me giggle because it's like, you know, when the NCAA hired a neurologist to look at concussions, he kind of cracked this whole thing open. And so the article went on to say that he will be preparing recommendations for screening of sudden sudden cardiac arrest. It is widely stated that sudden cardiac arrest is the leading cause of death among athletes, though the exact numbers are not clear. Here's a few cases that I was able to find that may give us some indication of what those numbers might be. The U.S. Registry of Sudden Death in Athletes found one death in 164,000 U.S. athletes. Studies in U.S. college athletes suggest that the incident is actually closer to one in 50,000. And we included some other statistics in our show notes for the NBA, the IOC, International Olympic Committee, uh, as well as FIFA. So be sure to check those out. My question here is, why aren't we testing for it? And so uh, a quote pulled from um, one of the articles says that, The Sports Cardiology Study Group of the European Society of Cardiology recommends universal ECG screening prior to sports participation. And the American Heart Association recommends only a cardiovascular-oriented history and physical examination. And so opponents of the mandatory ECG screening argue that it's not cost-effective and that false positives would unnecessarily bar too many athletes from sport. However, initial screenings will produce some false positives, but the ECG and the echocardiogram together with a detailed history and physical exam, you could actually flag those athletes who need further testing. So once these more extensive tests are completed, the risk for an unnecessary disqualification is low. But with all of that said, Tammy, I'm interested, like, 
what are your thoughts on that initial uh, quote, essentially saying that, um, you know, the cost, it's just not cost effective to do this kind of screening? Well, anyone that has ever had a conversation with me at one of my cocktail parties where I get very heated about the current insurance system, and I've got some things on that a little bit later, um, again, it's an Americanized construct. If you were dealing in a situation with universal health care, you're not talking about billing per patient. So when you see things about cost, they try and sell it. I've seen studies that estimate, you know, saving a cost of 10.6 million to 14.4 million per life saved in the United States. That is ludicrous that you have to convince. That's a lawsuit based hmm. reference point. That's not, it doesn't cost $14.4 million to do a pre-participation screening, right. a thorough ECG. It doesn't. That's what they're saying will save you from getting sued. <laughs> and I personally resent that that's the, the reality of where we're, of where we're at. Interesting. You know, if you have to convince somebody that the only reason to take care of someone who is putting their body on the line for your organization is because they equate to some sort of savings on a balance sheet, that is, that is a, with respect to the developed world and the majority of sports and the high profile professional sports, that is an Americanized construct. Interesting. It's unacceptable to me. Yeah. Well, and so it, yes, it's cost, it's cost prohibitive because people have decided it's cost prohibitive because the people who charge that much money for it, uh, can charge that much money for it. It's the system to which everyone's just been accustomed. Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, again, it just goes back to the athlete is not a commodity, both in what they are charging in order to get that screening or the fact that they, that person, meaning a life may or may not be worth investing in even getting the screening. And personally, I think it, I'm not even going to say personally, it is factual, but it is not just athlete. It is the average person running around. Mm -hmm. Is the kid playing at recess. It's the person who, you know, wants to go out and play softball at their company picnic, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. There's no reason that legitimate and important screenings should be denied because of a line item or an insurance company's decision of what is or is not worth a human life. Love it. Absolutely. Especially as healthcare practitioners. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I'm a lot of fun at cocktail parties. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, I wanted to take a minute to kind of look at what maybe environmental or situational circumstances might contribute to uh, the topics that we're discussing. And so we know the factors that contribute to the sickling of cells. So going back uh, to discuss the sickle cell here. So some of those might be extreme workouts, typically uh, in the off season or even just the beginning, getting back acclimated for a season, high temperatures like we've talked about. Um, Tammy, what is the responsibility on the athletic trainer to control for these factors if, the, if they know that the athlete has the sickle cell trait? Well, I don't personally know any athletic trainers that can control the weather. Uh, if you happen to run across one, let me know. I can <laughs> right. use that. So in the absence of having, you know, Roman demigod control over uh, the heat index, yeah. 
the reality is the athletic trainer is one of the people on the team responsible for controlling the situational factors mm-hmm. that are present at games and practices. Mm-hmm. That's just full stop. Yeah. If a coach disregards the safety of the athlete, an athletic trainer has a professional responsibility to address that failure. Mm-hmm. And if the coach is not responsive, receptive, go to the athletic director or whoever the higher up is in whatever uh, sports situation you're working in. Mm-hmm. And you keep going up the line until you are satisfied that the safety of these athletes is being addressed. Yeah. Um, contemporaneous notes. We've talked about it in previous episodes and we'll continue to talk about yeah. it. If you are concerned about what is going on, take notes while you are doing it, because if you end up getting wrapped into some sort of lawsuit later on, or if you need to defend the actions that you're taking, taking notes contemporaneously as it's happening or shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. um, those are those are invaluable tools for you to be able to defend the actions that you took. Right. So it may not make you popular. <laughs> but I promise you, it's no more uncomfortable than being across the deposition table from a plaintiff's attorney when you're named as a defendant or witness in a lawsuit. <laughs> That's a really good point, actually. Uh, I, I don't mean to laugh at that. It's just um, uh, my mentor has previously told me that always try to make a decision as if you're defending yourself in the court of law. And I think exactly what you just said right there. Uh, I imagine some of our listeners are maybe. Um, hearing this and potentially rolling their eyes or thinking, oh, you know, that's an ideal situation that we can just, you know, if a coach isn't listening, we go to the athletic director. If the athletic director isn't listening, we go to the next person. Because I do know that that um, in the real world, athletic trainers, uh, we deal with really sticky situations. And you're right. It's probably not going to make you popular, um, but it is imperative that you are documenting that. So if something was to ever happen, that you can defend yourself. And like you said, it's probably not going to be any more uncomfortable than answering the questions while you're being deposed uh, by an attorney as to why you did or did not do more. Um, and so I, as we're talking about this, I kind of wonder, can an athlete be treated differently because they have a positive test in their history? And if so, to what degree? Like, does that ever become discrimination? Well, I hesitate to say discrimination because that that implies a protected class. Um, okay. And we could get into into more discussion on that. But it's I think it's a communication issue. Okay. If you have and 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 it's an and it's a being informed issue. If you have a coach or if you as an athletic trainer are not familiar with sickle cell, figure it out. You know, talk to people, do some research, talk to people that have sickle cell mm-hmm. and get your head around what the what the holistic view of an athlete with sickle cell, either trait or disease might have. Mm-hmm. And because these kids, if they've been diagnosed, odds are this is not the first time that they've had to deal with it. That's a good and point. And so they likely know more about how their personal condition presents itself than you do. Mm. Um so this is this is more of a communication issue. Okay. If you are just treating the kid as if they passed or failed a test and then they get, you know, shoved off into a a, a different area like you've put them on a conveyor belt, <laughs> then you're gonna be in a different a different dynamic. In sure. fact, I would just go back to our previous discussion and say that yeah, it is a reality that dealing in the hierarchy of these various sports organizations or athletic departments is a problem can be difficult mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. But that's why communication ahead of time is 
beneficial. If you go in and you inform these athletic directors, your coaches, uh, the school nurses, if appropriate, you are a valuable part of the medical team. Right. So it is incumbent on you to a certain extent to lay that groundwork so that when you come in and are making a difficult decision, mm-hmm. that you are not seen as an outsider trying to you know, turn something on its head. Totally. So I think that that same communication that sets you up for success in, a, in an employment or professional standpoint there also sets you up for success in, a, in understanding the athletes that come in to see you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily address the potential issues with mandatory testing right. and the legitimate concerns about, I mean, we could, we could go on about race-based science. Yeah. There are medical devices that up until very recently had switches for white or black because race-based science indicated that white athletes were expected to perform in different ways and that black athletes were not. What? That is not in... <laughs> Oh my goodness. That is not in the all too distant past. Wow. I know idea. And so race-based science is is a reality when you talk about studies that are done. Mm-hmm. A lot of studies are done with the patients being white men. Sure. For medications, it's the reason that some medications affect women differently because they're not part of drug studies. They're not yeah. representatively included in drug studies. Yeah. And neither are people of color. Yeah. So when you get down to women of color then you're talking about an entirely totally narrowed down um, area. Mm-hmm. So um, y- there are legitimate concerns about mm-hmm. test results based on what could be considered, you know, or could fall into the area of race-based science. Mm-hmm. Um, when the NCAA implemented the mandatory screening, mm-hmm. it was largely motivated, as you said, by a wrongful death suit. Right. And there was considerable pushback that if the NCAA was focused on diagnosing risks for sudden cardiac death, then universal ECG screening would have a more robust justification. Totally. There are the false positive potentials and things like that, but we need to look at what's really being tested and whether collecting that kind of data or information can disproportionately and negatively affect certain demographics. And it's not something with a clear answer, Yeah. which is why there need to be advocates at all stages for it. Absolutely. Yeah. For for anybody that wants a further understanding on this, uh, the NATA has a number of resources on their website. Uh, there's a 2012 position statement that is preventing sudden death in sport. There's a 2013 consensus statement preventing sudden death in secondary schools, uh, secondary school programs. Um, there's best practices. And uh, in 2007, they release the emergency preparedness and management of sudden cardiac arrest. So um, definitely lots of resources out there for us. Um, And to me, all which mostly point at having a well-established emergency action plan and ideally an AED in there. So um, as we saw in that case from Kentucky, even this could fail sometimes. And so, Tammy, you know, without doing that ECG, is there anything more than an athletic trainer could do to prepare or protect themselves in the event that they have an athlete that goes into sudden cardiac arrest? Well, it is, like you said, the emergency action plan and making sure that everybody is up to speed on it and understands what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how you save that's how you save precious minutes. But even in that, 
the best laid plans can fail to cover all situations. Yeah. I mean, it is, there are so many moving parts and so many individual situations. Um, I go back to the uh, case with Fabrice Malumba that we talked about in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, if people are not necessarily remembering, is a professional footballer yeah. that collapsed on the field. And when I say footballer, I mean soccer. Um, <laughs> he collapsed on the pitch in 2012. He was, he, his heart stopped for 78 minutes um, wow. and was found later. Yeah, 70, 78 minutes. Um, so think about that. An hour and 15 minutes. But in his case, it was a sequence of very fortunate combinations. And for those of us, for those of you that haven't listened to the other episode, you should do that. But the end game is that he survived and is, and is doing well. And these details will make you understand how fortuitous it was. Yeah. The, uh, his team, he was playing an away game. Bolton was playing at Tottenham. Okay. The opposing team had five fully medically trained assistants on the pitch. Okay. And there was an ambulance from St. John's Hospital in the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, you're thinking, okay, this is this is at least a good start. Yeah, what what you'd expect in a in a professional situation, right? Sure. I mean, it's you know, you would want that you would want that to happen, right? But then you start getting into these other little details. Okay. So an opposing player immediately, we've all seen how how football matches can oh, go. Oh, totally. Yeah. So you're you're laying on the ground, and somebody's having a drink of water, and you know that kind of thing. An opposing player immediately recognized something was wrong and just started grabbing the medical professionals, getting them on the field, like motioning them over. Right. Um, and this, as we talked about in the previous episode, this was, we were watching this on television. I was going to say, was I want to remind the terrifying. audience that this was all happening live oh, on television. Yeah. And so it just, I mean, an unbelievably scary situation for everybody involved. But the medical team got on the field. The CPR and the oxygen were administered almost immediately. And here's where it gets kind of, uh, this is a, a story that obviously I really like because he's a good kid and it ended well. Yeah. But there was a cardiologist in the crowd hmm. who saw what was going on and happened to be known to, he was a season ticket holder. Okay. And happened to be known to one of the stewards where he was sitting. And so he was allowed on the pitch oh because the steward knew him and knew that he was, that he was a, a, cardiologist. A, a cardiologist. Wow. And so he came down and, and began to attend to him. But Fabrice was given 15 defib shocks and all. Wow. He was, he was hit twice on the field, once in the tunnel and 12 in the ambulance. Oh, my gosh. So, again, a sequence of events that is really, that is really good. But totally. then you get even more detail because the doctor was actually, the, the hospital should have taken him to another, or the, the ambulance should have taken him to another hospital. Okay if the actual plan was, was put in place. Um, but the doctor actually asked to take him to the London chest hospital oh. uh, rather than North Middlesex, which would have been closer. But it's because the doctor knew that the specialist equipment that Fabrice needed was at this other hospital. And that one was further so, away, the one that he ended up yes, going to. Yes, it was further away. Okay, okay. So he, the, the doctor convinced the ambulance to change plans. Mm. which I think we all know if it had ended differently, that could have been a big problem. Absolutely. So we're talking about these little things that had to fall into place and even in a situation like that. Right. But 
that's that's the way that's the way it went. And mm-hmm. so he um, he retired from football. He did not he did not return, um, but he stayed involved in the coaching ranks and things like that. Yeah. And so this is the case of the opposite. So you set yourself up for success is wonderful. Yeah. But when variables beyond our control come to deliver a positive result, that's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. But the foundation is the same. There needs to be a well-communicated and listen-to-the-rehearsed emergency <laughs> action plan, not yeah. passing out a piece of paper and expecting people to read it, absorb it, and be able to perform in real time. Introducing yourself to the paramedics and the EMT, mm-hmm. if there's an ambulance on site, mm-hmm. making sure they know that having an understanding of what traffic issues might be in play. Those of us that have worked in and around the Los Angeles area, that is a reality. Absolutely. You need to, you need to understand that. I'm in D.C. and the nature of K Street getting to George Washington Hospital, Yeah, it, there's nowhere to go on either side. And ambulances sit in traffic on K Street. Wow. That's a reality if you try and drive sirens going, sitting on an ambulance on K Street. <laughs> Yeah. It's not it's not ideal. Mm-hmm. But being ferocious, and I use that word very intentionally and in nipping any and all problems in the in the bud. Mm-hmm. If you see something that looks like it might pr- even prevent a minute worth of attention to your athlete, get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Because every single one of these things shave vital time, vital minutes off the time to deliver cardiac care and not just to your athlete. Yeah. It could be a coach, a referee, it could be a spectator, a cheerleader. Right. All of these people, you know, you you need to know what the emergency action plan is for your facility. Yeah. And be creative. Make sure it's practiced. The plan is practiced multiple times, yeah. not just at the beginning of the season to tick a box. Right. Right. Take it seriously because this can literally be the difference between life and death. Yeah, and and I think that 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 is the difference. So in this situation, um, I doubt that all of these things that you detailed were accounted for in an emergency action plan. Uh, and so this is a situation where things ended up in favor of the athlete, as opposed to the case that we heard earlier, where, uh, again, best laid plans, um, but the AED isn't where it's supposed to be. And so obviously right. now, uh, after hearing this, I, I hope that we all would be that much more cognizant of you know, is the AED actually put back where it's intended to be? Um, but obviously in the ki- in the situation of that case, it maybe wasn't something that was thought through. And I, I think that we always uh, hope for these things to never happen. Um, but just to emphasize your point about the continual uh, rehearsing and, and making sure that it is at the forefront of people's minds uh, is, is imperative. Um, so when we listen to all these lawsuits, we hear that it wasn't just the athletic trainer who was identified. And so what other team or administrator personnel is responsible for the care of these athletes when they know that, uh, for example, a positive sickle cell test is in play? Well, with the caveat of uh, patient confidentiality and privacy, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that can, you don't necessarily want to put up a list of names. No one, no one is suggesting that you say, these Absolutely. folks are sickle cell positive. Please <laughs> attend to appropriate. Put a sticker on them. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I feel like that's just, hmm, let's not even, let's not yeah. even go there. Um, but when a, when a plaintiff files a lawsuit, particularly after something as tragic as a sudden death, you can bet that anyone and everyone 
who had any relationship with the issue will be included and named in the suit. Mm. So if you if something happens to one of your athletes in an away game and that facility's EAP was arguably inadequate, that home athletic trainer, the administration, the coaches, everybody on that side could be included in the suit. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily they wouldn't be removed from it. Sure. But again, you don't want your name listed as a versus you right. in any <laughs> of these in any of these situations. Mm-hmm. So if you see something that might be inadequate, even if you think it isn't something in your purview, I recommend finding a way to bring it up. Again, with communication, you can be seen as not necessarily a fly in the ointment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as somebody who has extraordinary attention to detail, mm-hmm. that's a valuable asset to have. Absolutely. There are tactful ways to do it. And your proactive behavior may save someone's life. That's not an exaggeration. Totally. Don't assume that just because you saw it, somebody else might have. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this kind of goes back to, I believe in our, our previous discussions, we've said, you know, we can't really control whether we get named in something or not. And this is a perfect example of that, that maybe we would assume that if our athletes or uh, our team is at an away event and something happens that we would never be named in it. But uh, again, just to emphasize your point about taking com- contemporaneous notes and being observant and uh, kind of spot on um, to paying attention to these things in the event that that you might get named. I did want to say that. Yeah, and um, if you're, go ahead. I was just going to say, and going back to the the tragic case with the kid in the AED wasn't where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. There is nothing that prevents you the second you walk in your training room do a quick loop of where everything is supposed to be. We sit down and immediately sit, you know, open up our emails. If you're coming into an athletic training room at a high school or something where maybe you come in at three o'clock, mm-hmm. from three to three oh five, lay eyeballs on every one of the AEDs and make sure they're where they need to be. Yeah. That is the easiest possible thing to just work into your everyday schedule. Totally. One of the so. things that I that I had practiced um was every time they played the national anthem, because it's, you know, that it's something that every single sporting event, it's going to occur. Whenever they played the national anthem, I actually would rehearse CPR and the emergency action plan in my mind. Um, And so just kind of visually seeing myself go through it. uh, I'm a very visual person. And um, I know the, the, the power of visualization in terms of being able to remain calm in an actual situation. So there's another uh, tip or pointer that uh, our listeners could maybe take away and, and put into practice like the one that you just gave. It's a great idea. Uh, as the result of another death, the NCAA updated their sports medicine handbook to state, quote, the NCAA will provide unchallengeable authority to a school's sports medicine staff to cancel or modify any workout based on health and safety concerns for the student athlete. Tammy, I wonder how often this is respected. I wish I knew. <laughs> the NCAA levies a lot of a lot of things that they just assume magically are followed. Sure. Um, we all know that there are coaches who feel they have more latitude to ignore the medical staff, mm-hmm. whether it's out of tenure or just because out of intimidation because they're bullies. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some athletic trainers, particularly ones newer to the profession, that may be afraid to stand up. And please hear me. I understand. That is, I have been yelled at on the sidelines of national television because I happen to be the closest. Mm. It had nothing to do with me. I just happen to be in a line of sight. Mm -hmm. And I know it's hard. 
but that will not save you in court. Mm. Not feeling comfortable to go up to a bully coach or even just being new and not really knowing what you consider the lay of the land will not save you in court. Yeah. So I would hope that we're moving towards an environment, at least at the college level, where there would be no question that the medical staff has the authority to act in the best interest of the athlete. Um, I think we still have a very long way to go before that kind of understanding is the norm at high school and youth sports level, especially with lesser trained coaches. Absolutely. I mean, I do know in, in relation to the collegiate level, uh, they had that vote on the big five conferences uh, getting the um, autonomy. So for them uh-huh. to start being able to make those decisions. Uh, but I think exactly what you're saying, the simple fact that in a in an NCAA handbook, it already has this statement. And yet the sports medicine staff still has to move to get a vote for autonomy uh, it is just emphasizing that idea that you can write something down and put it in paper. The actual implementation and practice of it is much different. Well, and that's the NCAA trying to alleviate responsibility. Ah, going back to what we hey, were they, saying, they know pointing fingers. Yeah. 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 Uh, in the case yeah. from Kentucky, uh, the coach is also named in the suit. Uh, but how much responsibility does he carry, for example, uh, when the athletic trainer is present? Because from my understanding, you know, kind of the point of having a medical professional there is to take these kinds of actions out of the hands of a coach. Uh, but sh- obviously they should still be CPR AED certified and obviously involved in emergency action planning. Absolutely. In this, in this current environment, there is no excuse for a coaching staff to not be as procedurally informed as the medical staff. And not just the head coach, but if you're talking about something that has position coaches, they mm-hmm. need to be informed as well. Football practice fields are enormous. Yeah. And if there's not an athletic trainer present at each of the position huddles, which is frequently the case at any school that is not a major football university, division one football school. Right, right. Um, there's not going to be an athletic trainer present at each of the position huddles. Yeah. So the coaches have to know what to look for. Worst case, or I would say the rather the best case scenario, mm-hmm. is that the coach calls the athletic trainer over to evaluate and confer and nothing ends up being wrong. Mm -hmm. So you missed out on five minutes of practice to cover your bases and keep an athlete safe. Mm -hmm. Great. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with that. No big loss. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the medical, the the coaching staff has to be on the same page and they have to understand the EAP. If you need to send your linebacker coach to open up the gate for the ambulance and he looks at you like you asked your dog to do math, Mm -hmm. then we have a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Regarding sickle cell, I did want to note on one of the cases I found during the research, uh, but we didn't discuss, uh, Benny F. Abram III at Ole Miss, uh, he passed away in 2010. And as part of his settlement, Ole Miss established the Bernie F. Abram III Health and Sports Performance Lecture Series to be presented to Mississippi high school and community college coaches athletic trainers, and other sports medicine personnel to help educate and prevent athletic-related emergencies and deaths. As well, the university also will award the Benny F. Abram III scholarship each year to a student athletic trainer who has demonstrated ability and an interest in a career in sports medicine. So, you know, it's worth mentioning that because it's important to know that this isn't just about settling for money. 
sometimes, and, and a lot of times, these families are attempting to make a difference and to change things for the future of other student athletes so that other children aren't harmed in the way that theirs were. Yeah, I, th- I think you see that. You see that a lot because by the time lawyers take their fees, and I speak yeah. as one, yeah. by the time the lawyers take their fees and the emotional energy that it takes to go through that, mm-hmm. um, I get I get very prickly when people start talking about you know families of deceased athletes that are just in it for the money. Mm. Most of the ones that I have spoken to whether the athlete has died or whether the athletes become incapacitated in some way or just cannot play anymore for whatever reason, they're in it to change it so it doesn't happen to somebody else's kid. Yeah. That's the refrain I hear. Not, yeah. boy, I'm really super glad I paid this lawyer all this money. <laughs> totally. Totally. I want to move on to to discussing the reasonably prudent person. And so um, I wanted to see maybe what you had to add here uh, in regards to what a reasonably prudent person would do? Well, we remember in the previous episode, um, please go back and listen, <laughs> uh, you know, we discussed that the there's a reasonably prudent professional, mm-hmm. which is a higher standard of care. Mm-hmm. And so professionals or somebody with experience in a particular area can be held to a reasonably prudent professional standard of care. Right. So under this standard, they're judged according to how other similarly situated experts would behave in the same situation. Mm -hmm. And since we as board certified medical professionals are held to the standard of how similarly situated certified medical professionals would behave in a given situation, that is that is the standard to which we must achieve. Right. So if we're talking about that, a reasonably prudent professional would have a standard of where the AED is, enacting the emergency procedure as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that if it doesn't work or if something goes, if, if, if if the situation ends in a way where the athlete is either damaged or dies, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean it was a failure of the EAP. True. And we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit. You know, we talk about the emotional stability and safety and well-being of athletes. But if you've ever spoken to anyone who's had an athlete die in front of them yeah. as an athletic trainer, as a coach, or as a teammate, that's, that's a legitimate concern as well. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you are held to the standard. You, are, you should be proud to be held to the standard yeah. of and so, you know, take your activities with your EAP and your emergency action plans and wrap your coaches in and wrap everybody in um, and understand that they're going to, it's not going to be what the science teacher would understand about an emergency action plan. It's going to be what the certified athletic trainer would understand about mm-hmm. the emergency action plan mm-hmm. and the operation of the AED and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I have regarding a reasonably prudent person in these situations and just generally speaking, when we think about uh, pre-existing or preventable situations is when does the research or rate of incident mandate a standard? You mentioned that we should act in a way that others similarly situated would respond, but it makes me wonder how come an athletic trainer with pro-athletes might have more information about their conditions than an athletic trainer at the high school level or an industrial position. I think that 
you know, my, my kind of my line of questioning and my thinking here is a good caveat to, like you've mentioned, treating the athlete as a whole and not just a commodity, but it's hard to feel like you're actually able to give the best possible care when there isn't a requirement to do the screening or that the organization may not even value that athlete because they're not maybe earning them money necessarily. No, I think that's, I think that's true. And it, it does go, like you said, to the caveat as, as not just treating them uh, as a commodity, but it, it is the reality that athletic trainers at higher levels are going to have access to things that athletic trainers at lower levels do not. Yeah. Um, and that, but that doesn't stop you from making a case, mm-hmm. create a, a, you know, create a proposal for something that you see that could possibly be put into place. Because yeah. if you're at a high school, maybe your high school can't necessarily do it, but what happens if the district gets involved? Mm-hmm. What happens if the county makes a rule and can somehow then it stops being, uh, it stops appearing like a specific line item for an athletic director in his budget and can start to be seen as a bigger idea. Yeah. There's nothing to stop you from doing that. Yeah, You may not be able to wish a, a you know an entire ECG screening procedure out of thin air. Totally. But you could have a hand in potentially creating a situation where it could be introduced on a on a wider scale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been able to rattle off data to our audience uh about numbers of deaths or uh you know, we've shared with you litigious situations uh that have come as a result of this. Um but I just want to take a moment to really let the reality of what we're discussing to sink in. You know, we have the opportunity to potentially prevent the death of one of our athletes. And regardless of all other details, this is a human life in our hands that if planned and executed properly, we could fully protect from death. And I think that when we think about an athlete as a whole person, not just knee injury or always wanting water, and we actually consider the quality of life for them, it's hard to understand why we aren't doing everything we can to protect them from death. And, you know, it, it makes me mad at our healthcare system. Everything that you've brought up that you're saying is, you know, is a, con- is a construct, it makes me so mad but also incredibly and deeply thankful for our profession. And I I just, I can't overemphasize the importance of planning and preparedness for these situations, especially since many of us won't have the luxury of screening, Um, you know, and and like you've already kind of brought up and and I want to let you kind of talk about this a little bit, but the effect that a death has on us or a fellow teammate or an organization as a whole, um, you know, and, and the ability or even inability to, to rebuild trust within yourself or with others. I just, I want to take a moment for our listeners to kind of maybe put themselves in the shoes of someone um, who's maybe experienced this, or if they if they themselves have experienced it, um, just to really let the gravity of what we're discussing sink in. 
Um, but Tammy, is there anything that you want to add here? Well, I, as I've said before, you're not wrong to be mad at the U.S. system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost marginally not a healthcare system, and strictly should be referred to as a health and insurance system. Because, um, and and I encourage I encourage people who potentially the United States is the only the only medical system that they that they know and are familiar with. I encourage you to look at how it's done in in other countries, particularly other developed countries, mm-hmm. because we are an anomaly, mm-hmm. and that anomaly actually puts us at a disadvantage with respect to medical conditions. Um, When you have a system that is exclusively run as a profit center by, in my opinion, overpaid bean counters, Hmm. um, you're not getting treatment as a patient. You're getting treatment as a cost center and treatment as a line item. Mm -hmm. Um, The rest of the world, the developed world is appalled at our system and, and they should be. But not only the issues, I mean, it, it, it touches on so many areas mm-hmm. because even if you talk about, like you said, the effect that the death has on your mental health yeah. or a catastrophic injury on your mental health. Yeah. Well, in this country, mental health care after a catastrophic loss is not a given because they could consider it uh, a preexisting condition <laughs> or something that is not being covered. Totally. That's, that that should never be that should never be a situation. Agreed. And yeah. if you take a step back from whether or not a non-doctor uh, can decide what sort of medical treatment should be administered, mm-hmm. or they can decide whether or not a surgery is done, they decide that the meniscus injury that you have, they're not going to treat it or they're not going to cover it because it's linked to an ACL tear that you had seven years ago. Mm. I've gotten in a fight about a pre-existing condition where I am actually missing an organ, which is fine. But I had a kid on the phone trying to tell me that I was lying to him about whether or not I was taking any medication for it. And if Mm. you think I did not get very condescending to him and say, one of us is trained medically and one of us is not, (laughs) which one do you think it is? You would be incorrect. Yeah. So that is a that's a reality. But then when you take a step back even further and we talk about licensure and we talk about athletic trainers not being able to work in certain settings, mm-hmm. keep in mind that the only reason athletic trainers cannot work in doctor settings under our exclusively our certification mm-hmm. is because an insurance company decided we don't have a number associated with yeah, it. Yeah, they they just don't So it's insurance us. regulators. Mm-hmm that prevent us from working where doctors would like us to work. Mm-hmm. It's not qualification. Hmm. It's not experience. It's hmm. not because our education is different. I, I, I deal with people all over the world. Certified athletic trainers are as good, if not better, than some of the physio training that goes on in other countries. Absolutely. But we are prevented from being able to work in certain situations, which means our athletes mm-hmm. and our patients are prevented from receiving the best possible medical coverage yeah. because of capricious decisions made by people who may or may not even have even a hint of medical training. Absolutely. So it's, it is a larger, it is a larger scale. And if I could encourage our listeners, please get involved and engage when health, healthcare is not just a political right V left 
Obamacare versus not. It's mm-hmm. not that. Mm-hmm. Health care, look at how it's done in other countries. Mm-hmm. Look at how the idea that wealth or access or where you live doesn't prevent you from the right to basic medical care. Mm-hmm. Advocate for that. Mm-hmm. Stand up for that. Use the letters after your name. Yeah. Use them all. Yeah. We're, we're going to go into that uh, quite a bit more uh, in the next episode with with prevention. Um, and just a little preview of that is, you know, mostly because that is not the type of, of healthcare that our country practices. We don't prevent, we don't practice preventable medicine. Um, and so Tammy, nope. I'll, I'll be interested in hearing your, your thoughts on that. But I think that you provide some, some really good takeaway points there. And with there still being such a high variance between screening and non-screening, it seems best that the athletic trainer educate themselves by reading the NATA position statements that we've recommended here, um, you know, about how to plan for events, including pre-existing conditions. Uh, but moreover, like we've discussed pretty extensively, emergency planning and practicing seems to be at the pinnacle of the cases that we looked at and essentially at the heart of how to ensure that a pre-existing condition does not take the life of an athlete, uh, you know, while on your watch. And so I would encourage our listeners to take the time to look over your emergency action plan, decide if it's thorough enough to serve you should a situation like the ones that we've discussed today may arise. Um, And also, you know, as a profession, who we are looking to increasingly be recognized as respected healthcare providers, we face an increased amount of responsibility in understanding and identifying pre-existing conditions. So as we will discuss on the next episode, there are ways that can become preventable situations And we, as the healthcare provider, are on the front line of who can prevent these from becoming death. And so we have that responsibility in the work that we take on to be prepared for this and to act with due diligence in the execution of our duties. And the employers who acquire us and the patients who rely on us are required. They are looking for us to act in these situations. So we encourage you with the discussion that we've had today to put these into practice. Tammy, is there anything else that you want to leave as final recommendations for our listeners? No, I think that the the, the last little creative thing that I would say is uh, make sure that your coaches can run the EAP without you. Absolutely. Make sure they, if, if something happens and you're not there, Make sure they can at least get a start on it. So don't don't be so uh, don't be so convinced that you're the linchpin of something that you don't make sure that there's a contingency plan. What if the emergency action plan involves you? What if you're the one that goes down? Wouldn't you like to have your coaches know what to do? Right, right. And just a little thought for future. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. In in the uh, the template that we provide as a company for for people that that contract with us, that's actually one of what we call special circumstances um, where we have outlined what happens when the athletic trainer isn't present. But I think what you're saying is, is actually make them rehearse it without you or, or make sure that they are actually going through those steps when you're not uh, the one who is uh, running point on everything. So 
Great follow-up uh, recommendations and, and a good point there. <laughs> I think so. Just lay, just lay down and you pretend like you're unconscious and see how well your coaches do. I promise <laughs> you they'll get a little nervous and it'll be great. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for continuing education, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.